A Key to the Inside, a podcast by Corey Johnson-Levitt. By interviewing leaders from all branches of government, our podcast will provide insight and an up-close perspective into state and national government. All right, welcome to the KJL podcast. You have partner Andy Levitt and partner Ron Corey here with State Budget Director Dave Masseron and Deputy Director Bethany Wixall. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks for having us. Um, well, it is, I think, a great opportunity. What we're trying to do is give folks a feel for what folks making the decisions are a little bit like both personally and then how they are using uh, their skills to kind of shape the work they're doing. So uh, I will start, Dave, with maybe a couple of, uh, just to let folks get a better understanding of who the real Dave Masteron is. Uh, I'll say the one thing that I learned about Dave a few months ago that surprised me uh, was that he is a hobbyist woodworker, uh, building some tables, some picture frames. Um, uh, and also surprised me, he takes his safety of the woodworking shop quite seriously uh, by having a, uh, what is the table saw blade that has the, in, the saw stop on his table saw blade was the deal he made with his wife. So um, Dave, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and then kind of maybe a fun question would be if you had eight hours without your cell phone, so no one could interrupt you and you could do whatever you want, how would you like to spend your day? Well, uh, thank, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you, you're right. I, I, I do I do enjoy woodworking. Um, I'm glad my wife uh, insisted I get this all stopped because as, as I told you uh, a few months ago, it, when I'm working hard, I have a tendency to not sleep as well as maybe I'd like. And I do projects at night and I manage to not pay attention and run my hand across the top of the table saw. And it worked perfectly. I didn't even get cut. Uh, whereas had I had a traditional one, I might be missing some fingers. So um, a little bit about me. Um, I obviously came to the state by way of the city um, where I was the CFO there. Um, very different budget challenges, but uh, similar uh, set of priorities from a policy standpoint. Um, and, you know, a father of uh, two young boys, um, Detroit resident, um, born, and, born and bred here. Um, and, uh, if I had eight hours, what would I do? I think that the politically correct thing to say is spend it with my kids, but the pandemic has <laughs> no, meant no, I will spend... take them out of the equation. You will get another eight hours to have a great family day. This is day. Okay. This yeah, is yeah. just day. That's good. Because I was saying in the pandemic, I'm not sure I would spend those eight hours with <laughs> my two sons. Um, you know, I think I'd probably break the day into two parts. Um, you know, something outside, uh, depending on the season, whether, you know, it could be hunting, biking, boating, something where I get to just be outside and enjoy the day. And then a period where I could do something quiet, like, you know, work uh, in my woodshop or read. Uh, one of those two things where I could just kind of decompress. Because as you, as everyone knows, the pandemic has given us a lot less time uh, to be uh, quietly reflective uh, as we maybe once had the opportunity especially those of us with young kids. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so the other thing we had, our first guest was DHHS director, Elizabeth Hertel. Um, and we are gonna have to have Curtis cause I feel like 
we might just, but I'm going to ask you who else is in the wedding party should we add to the <laughs> podcast list. Uh, we're just going to try and get the entire wedding party uh, together at this point. So um, Dave, I think Curtis was your best man. I don't know. How did you and Curtis meet in, um, was it in politics or something else? And then you guys came together to work in this space. Yeah, so, I mean, we were both politically active in college, but we lived on the second floor of Case Hall at Michigan State because we were both James Madison kids. And we hung out because we both had politically active parents. I mean, obviously, everybody knows the speaker. Um, so we hung out from college on. Um, I am the godfather to uh, one of their kids. Curtis was the it was the best man at my wedding. Um, he's my best friend in the world. And uh, it's kind of a, a unusual world that managed for us both to be uh, friends for, you know, I guess got over 20 years now and then end up in jobs where we uh, have to work with each other. Yeah. Or get to work with each other. Yeah. Pretty, pretty fun. Uh, good opportunity. And then also um, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's boring. Uh, Bethany can attest, uh, having been on calls, we, we often reminisce about things that that really is just, you know, kind of pure old man boring stuff, like what TV shows we watched in college. Or they we compare may, their favorite football players. <laughs> we may have to have you both come back and uh, do a review of Curtis's music career. He, he's a good guitarist. You should see if you can get him to sing on the podcast. <laughs> so, uh, well, cool. We'll shift gears a little bit. I'm going to kick it to Ron for kind of the first question, digging into the state budget. Uh, thanks for telling us a little bit about yourself, Dave. Well, again, thank you guys both for uh, coming on. We know you're uh, really busy um, with the with all the budget now. And uh, my question more is, the President just signed the 1.9 trillion dollars stimulus package. Um, a lot of money is going to be going to the state. A lot of money to counties and local governments. How how best uh, can can we or as the state uh, manage these funds? So to you know, make them work longer than, you know, just this year. Is there a way or a plan uh, where that can happen? So, you know, I guess I'd answer that question two ways. One is, obviously, we're still in the process of studying the bills uh, and the funding streams, because it's more than just the direct aid. I mean, there's there's money for child care investments. There's money for school investments. There's money to really try to affect transformative change. And I think you framed it the perfect way, which is we have probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to have this funding available to us. At the same time, the federal government is providing tremendous resources directly to our residents. So then the question is what can state government invest in and how can state government make investments so when we emerge from the pandemic, we're in a position to thrive. Um, and you know we're undergoing a process to try to prioritize that, you know, we'll be reaching out um, to stakeholders, to um, professionals that um, work in government space across the state and try to learn lessons from other states on the, on the best ways uh, to put these funds to use. But really, that has to be the focus. What investments will the federal rules allow us to make that can really transform and make meaningful change to our residents? And, and that's and that's got to be a focus. And, and and I think along those lines, the pandemic did highlight some of the places where we need to invest. Right. We've seen that there wasn't the healthcare infrastructure that we necessarily needed 
to be ready to respond. That we've seen that there was some disparity of access. And I, I know people often, when they hear a discussion of disparity of access to healthcare, they think urban areas, but it, it's a huge issue in urban areas, but it's also an issue in rural areas. And, and we need to figure out the right investments in infrastructure um, that can be made either with this funding or other federal funding to try to figure out how to drive um, resources to people where they need them so that if something like this comes again or any kind of emergency, you know, we're prepared to meet it. Do you see uh, uh, once this one is finished, let's say 2021, the 1.9 has been doled out, Michigan has theirs, you guys have put in place hopefully long-term solutions. Do you see uh, a potential of another one coming around in 2022, given that obviously last will be one time, you know, it, it become, can, can become addictive uh, for some municipalities and some locals and some programs. Do you guys see that as, you know, maybe becoming another issue on the back end here? I think that's why we have to be very careful about how we spend the money. It needs to be driven towards transformational investments um, that help us meet future um, need uh, in a way that's sensitive to our operational budgets. I do see, and at least I hope, that there is additional uh, funding uh, from the federal government for infrastructure. I, I mean, we are getting a tremendous amount of money as our local governments, but the need far uh, outweighs or exceeds the amount of money we're getting in terms of an infrastructure space. And I know it's so hard, and it was hard for me coming even from the city to the state because you get these numbers that are so big they're hard to kind of wrap your head around, right? I mean, um, my God, if you have $5 billion, it seems like you could fix everything. But, you know, an average high school is exceeding 90 to $100 million when you add an ADA compliance and other components that they have to design high schools for today. Um, the total cost of infrastructure in the state is, is significant, and the amount of investment that's been made over the last several decades has not kept up with the pace of need. And therefore, there's this backlog of projects. Um, and you can see a little bit of that in the fact that, you know, we announced a recommendation to the legislature for $300 million in, in local bridge repair. That only touched the bottom of the problem of local bridges that are, you know, that were closed. But there's a whole nother set of bridges, you know, literally hundreds, um, that are in structural disrepair that will end up on a closed list if we don't make investment. So if you think just local bridges, which are the smaller bridges that are across the state, there's at least, you know, I mean, another maybe 900 to a billion dollars of need just there. And, and that doesn't touch all of the other local infrastructure pipes and alike. So Ron, to answer your question, I'm hopeful there's a second piece on the infrastructure side. And then I'm, I'm really hopeful and optimistic that we can come together with the legislature to make sure these are transformative. You know, the great thing about uh, the priorities um, on, on the other side of the party is, you know, they're always, and they always have been at a state level, at least, cognizant of long-term budget obligations and the need to make sure that we're making investments there. So I think working together, we can drive investments that, that take into account the need to be protective of or protective against building programs that aren't sustainable uh, into the future without at least an acknowledgement that, you know, this is a three-year kind of post-pandemic program. So building off of that a little bit, Dave, um, you're all of what, I think 11 weeks, 10 weeks onto the job now. Uh, so I expect you have a real good handle on this. 
uh, and it goes along with kind of what Ron was saying, but what are the, what I would consider like five or 10 year thoughts of that are going to, or issues or budget implications that are going to shape um, this town further down the road and um, to the degree that the federal money plays into it, if you have thoughts on that, share it, that we could alleviate or um, use that to smooth or help that runway um, kind of on a long-term basis. I mean, I think the first thing over the next five to 10 years is our, our tax structure um, and our general fund budget. Once we get through uh, the period of stimulus, um, it, there are structural issues in our budget we have to deal with. So we have to begin to build the plan to deal with those. Um, in a more long-term five to 10 year, I think one of the things that will really dominate everybody's thinking is in a post-pandemic world, um, the way we do business, the way we interact has shifted. Um, we've dramatically accelerated the cultural acceptance of remote work. We've dramatically accelerated uh, some investment that businesses will make in automation to space people out and to lessen their their uh, reliance on employees. And, and, and therefore, there will be other types of jobs and other types of places where people will work to participate in the economy. And we're going to need to make investments in our people to help train and upskill them so that they can access um, this new kind of post-pandemic economy. And more than that, as we make that investment in our people, I think that there's a corresponding economic development that comes with it. Because in my time in the city, and I know the mayor would say this as well, there was not a lot of focus on tax incentives and alike and tax structure. You had to do kind of your best, right? You had to make sure you made the cost neutral somewhere else. But what every CEO was focused on was how was your workforce, what workforce availability was and how well were they trained? And that I think is gonna be a driving factor in our budgets moving forward. How do we change that? I think the other things, you know, with the remote work and alike um, and the need to have access to this kind of medium, you know, broadband, broadband type investments are gonna be important. Um, and then, you know, we have an infrastructure problem. We need to make investments in our roads, in our water systems, in our sewer systems uh, across the board. Um, probably in electrical grids too, uh, that's more you know private sector driven. Um, and you know, as we convert uh, to more renewable energy, there's additional needs for investment. So I, I think those are probably categorically um, where we're headed. So then, with respect to this funding, I think we can make hopefully some down payments on that training, some down payments on some of the infrastructure things. Again, we're going to be constrained by the rules that the U.S. Department of Treasury issue um, and the federal government issues, depending on the program. And from that, we can start to try to chip away at those problems in a meaningful way to set us ahead when, you know, hopefully we get to the other end of this tunnel. Coming from Detroit, obviously you had basically not nine city council members. When you're walking into Michigan, you have 148 legislators. <laughs> Uh, Bethany's obviously dealt with these folks before. Um, what what do you see as uh, a difference uh, in kind of play, playing nine off of each other or 148 off each other? No. With all due respect to my uh, uh, chair of the House and chair of the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee, I, I did get the benefit of going through 
three budget processes with uh, my budget chair in the city. So we had established a working relationship. We understood uh, each other's priorities and each other's processes. So we were able to work together to bridge what were significant divides at times between the mayor and the council, but we were able to kind of set aside um, all of the different preconceived notions and work a process to get to a result. Um, you know, I had the benefit of having been in the city for years before to develop a relationship with Chairwoman Ayers. Um, and one of the things, you know, I need to work on, and I think we collectively need to work on is developing those relationships um, and focusing on the budget and, and learning how to focus where we agree with each other. Um, it's really easy to focus on the discord. It's really easy to focus on where we disagree. Um, and Chairman Elbert and Chairman Stamas are serious, dedicated public servants. Um, and of course, they're gonna not agree with everything I said. If they did, I'd wonder why, right? I mean, that, that's the natural human experience. The, the, real, the real difficult thing to do and the important thing to do and the thing we were sent here to do is to figure out how to set those differences aside, focus on our common ground, and make investments that we know that the people of the state are counting on us to make. Um, and we're still in a work in progress, as I think most people have seen, at getting to that point. Um, I'm, I'm ever an optimist, so I'll, I'll stay optimistic that we'll get there. Bethany, I gotta ask, what, what was his first question when he came and sat in his office? Proverbial office, right? Since we're yeah. only in Zoom. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's been a really fast-paced three months. Dave came in, obviously, as we were, uh, you know, six weeks out or so from having to put out a budget. So um, I think he's jumped in and learned the material very quickly, as obviously you've all seen. So um, it's been good to work with him. I can't even remember what that was, probably other than uh, something about catching him up very quickly. So we've been in a in a very accelerated uh, six months or three months, especially when, when you factor in, you know, two different sets of federal stimulus bills all at the same time, so. Dave, I mean, we're seeing, I think, the hope, right? We're getting uh, vaccines into people's arms. Uh, we're gonna have opening of vaccines in early April. Uh, it feels like there's some optimism in the air. Um, you all have access to, economists and folks who are kind of helping you understand what this future looks like. What do you think, um, let's just say Q1 was still kind of all about coming out of what I would call, you know, the dark winter, you know, Q2 is going to chew up a little bit of that, maybe three and four. How are you guys looking at Michigan's recovery? Um, what might be hot and what might be a concern? Uh, for you guys as to what might get left behind or uh, recover. I think one thing we, in Michigan, unfortunately, we know recessions and we've come out of recessions before, but we usually have a pocket of people or an industry that may not always rise with the rest of the boat. So uh, I'll pause there and see if you have any thoughts on that. You know, I'll answer that question two ways. The first is, I think you're right on timing, right? I mean, based on what economists think, I think um, most economists, especially given what the federal government did, expect kind of an explosive growth. And I think, you know, to some extent, if you think about economics as an indicator of human behavior, I think many of us are going to participate in that. Like, I mean, many of us want to get out 
and do fun things. Many of us want to go on vacations. We want to celebrate with others. Like So I think that there'll be that kind of explosion of optimism once we get there. When we get there, I think is an, you know obviously an open question that I'm not sure anyone can predict, but I, I do think we're primed for growth. I, I, and I said I would answer that in two parts. The first part is, you know, a bunch of other states are making investments with this federal funding. I, I, to my knowledge, Michigan is the only state that I'm aware of that isn't deploying all of its federal funding um, because we're still working through a process. And we're getting this influx of additional capacity to invest, but we're not the only ones that's getting this influx of additional capacity to invest. In other states that act quickly and make smart investments are going to be well positioned to compete for jobs that may otherwise be here. And the cost to move now has become so much lesser, right? I mean, I'm doing this not in an office, right? I mean, our ability to separate from an actual location and move to a new one is decidedly different. So I think one of my fears for that early set of next quarters and into next year is how well as a state we're able to show the world we can function. The second thing that I think we all have to be worried about is what people call the K-shaped recovery, um, which is that some people have done actually really well during this pandemic, while others have not. Others have really struggled. And I think that there's a potential for that to continue as we move forward. And that's when I was talking about the need to make investments in our workforce, in our people, so that they have an opportunity to move themselves from that bottom part of the K to the top part of the K so that they can continue to have an opportunity to thrive. Um, I'm not sure where those sectors are. I'm not sure exactly that any of us know how the economy will adjust in a post-pandemic world, but I think we all know um, the way we consume things, the way we buy things has changed, right? I mean. For those of us that weren't using Amazon as religiously as many of us use it now, that delivery model has shifted a little bit. We're all a little more comfortable and probably a little bit more like the convenience of mail order. So what does that do to a service sector? Um, when you think about hotel industries, I think a lot of us wanna go on trips. I mean, everyone wants to kind of get out of house and, and see something new. But I think about it from a consultant standpoint. My prior job, we had consultants that would come sit and work across the table with me. Had we figured out that this is enough of that interaction so they're not flying in and staying in a hotel, and then what happens to the hoteling industry as it adjusts to a new set of demands as business travel maybe tamps down? I don't know if that will happen, but I think it's predictable that it might. Um, so I think we have to worry about not only the proprietors and owners of those hotels, but the people who work in that industry. Um, I, I think that kind of answers your question. I wish we had more certainty, but if the last year has taught us anything is that, you know, at this point in time, certainty projecting out in a pandemic, um, you know, it just isn't available to us. You'd mentioned uh, uh, infrastructure earlier about uh, obviously the need we have with roads, bridges, the grid and the like. Besides infrastructure, if there was another sector in Michigan uh, that needed uh, an influx, uh, an injection of uh, a kick, what, would, what sector do you think that would, uh, you would at least uh, look to, uh, to improving? 
And the federal government, I think, is helping us here. I think the first thing I think of it is when we look at the recession and the disproportionate impact on working mothers, um, you see the importance of childcare, and that industry has been disrupted um, significantly by the pandemic. And we need to invest there, not only for the small business and proprietors that run uh, those those businesses, but you know people need an ac need access to quality childcare options um, for their kids. And we're going to need to make really targeted investments to ensure that that industry survives and that there are more available places where kids can safely you know, spend their day while their parents work so parents have the option to work. And then carrying that on as the kid kind of ages um, is you know, schools in general. I think that there's, there's a need, um, you know, the kids in school went through a lot. I mean, they, you know, you, you've got kids that were juniors that you know, graduated and maybe didn't even spend any time in school and they're now moving off to uh, college or post uh, high school experience. You've got kids that are undergoing, you know, jumping from eighth grade to being a sophomore in high school. There's a lot of investment and attention that these kids are gonna need to kind of work their way through, um, work their way through this experience. And, and I think that the federal government helped us there. I think we're gonna have to be very careful about how we make those investments um, so that it's available to, to all of our students. I don't know, Bethany, you, you've been with the state longer than me. Am I missing any other possible investments? I mean, there's always many options, but I think you've hit some key priorities. Uh, I guess I will close out with just a couple easy questions, maybe give folks a little bit better understanding of who you both are. If, are you reading any good books? Or do you have time to read? Um, if you did have time to read, what would be a good book you'd want to read? Uh, if you have any thoughts on that. I think Dave's looking for a book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the title of the book. Uh, Rochelle Riley suggested it on Twitter. It's Alice Randall's new book about uh, um, the history of uh, some individuals that lived in Black Bottom. So I've been reading that book uh, cool. for the last couple of weeks. I don't know, Bethany, what are you reading? Uh, you know, honestly, last year I tried to read at least a book a week and this year has been a little bit hard to do that. So I'm behind. Um, but I just finished a book called uh, The Missionaries that was out last year and I saw on several good lists or is out recently. So um, it's about uh, both missionaries and mercenary work um, in uh, the military and sort of a, a comparison between Colombia and Afghanistan. So that's been an interesting uh, difference in some of the other war coverage that you usually read. Yeah, I bet. Uh, all right, last one. How do you drink your coffee? Um, just plain coffee, just black. Also black. All right, two simple folks with good reading. And both both those books are nonfiction. Uh, mine was actually fiction. Oh, really? M mine's a fictionalized nonfiction, I think, is how they describe it. Okay, historical. Um, kind of like the Eric Larson books. Okay, cool. All right, Ron, do you have any other questions for our esteemed guests before we've already held them past? Nope. Just thank you guys. You guys are doing great work. Uh, good luck going forward and please continue to keep taking our phone calls. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ron and Andy. Thanks, Al. We'll talk Thanks. soon. Thank you for joining A Key to the Inside, the KJL podcast.